All right, we are back. Let's talk about some meaty stuff here in our second segment, which is kind of the kind of the meaty segment of the three, oftentimes. And here's some red meat, courtesy of an article by Matt Weiser, about uh, what will happen if these less-than-honest people have their way with these tunnels. They want to stick into the Delta to send more water south. Matt Weiser took a look at... Uh, what would happen to Highway 160 down in Sacramento County, which, of course, is on the berm, paralleling the Sacramento River? Um, well, the map in the B shows this huge number of pumping stations that will be down there around Hood, which is going to cause massive traffic diversions for years. So photo accompanying the piece showing walnut grove farmer Daniel Wilson noting that he relies on Highway 160 to get his cherries, pears, and corn from field to packing shed and then to market. He's opposing the tunneling project partly because some of it would take up his farmland. He said, I can't say anything but total disruption for 10 to 15 years. The plumbing works alone are estimated to cost $14 billion to be funded by bonds issued by the California Department of Water Resources. Not coincidentally, we note that the Sacramento City Council voted Tuesday to do some upgrades to the water treatment plant here in Sacramento, which on first glance you think, well, of course, that's a great idea. Let's see if we can take some of those uh, chemicals, which are not being adequately removed from, uh, from, from the outgoing water from the sewage treatment plant, uh, and, and just, you know, remove it. Things like nitrates, things like ammonia, maybe, maybe things like the pharmaceuticals that you peed down the toilet. <laughs> I don't know. But... I realize that the real thing motivating this cleanup of our water is so that when they stick those big straws downstream and suck the water out to send it to Southern California, they're not going to have to drink our urine down there. Well, I'm sure that's the idea anyway. We, of course, promise to continue following that story, one of the great scams of the 21st century in California, as far as we can see. And as we like to do every month or so, we put it out there one more time. If you can explain how you can improve the fisheries and farmland of the Delta by removing more water from the Sacramento River, we'll sign on. We do want to applaud the editorial board of the Bee for coming around to this, uh, this idea of, you know, how you shouldn't toss your drugs down the toilet. This dovetails nicely with the story we reported about, uh, about fish picking up uh, basically benzodiazepines and then not being so worried about predators. I mean, the same thing that makes you less worried about the stresses in your life when you take Valium, apparently put fish at ease as well to their detriment. We're quite disturbed to note a recent survey of American Rivers notes that they're apparently not in as good a shape as we thought. There's all kinds of chemicals in there, particularly runoff, uh, things like phosphate, nitrates from fertilizers that are causing all kinds of problems. Water pollution is a serious issue. We need to address it. Hopefully that sewage treatment plant uh, in Sacramento is going to help our water quality, but we think there's some ulterior motives here behind this, and we're going we're gonna to dig around and see what we can come up with. And, of course, um, this last month marked the 10th anniversary of the beginning of the great fiasco known as the war in Iraq. L.A. Times had a little in-brief article worthy of mention. They note that the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan will ultimately cost between $4 trillion Yes, with a T, between four and six trillion dollars when you factor in the medical care and disability benefits that uh, will have to be paid to take care of the people that were hurt so badly in those conflicts. The bill to taxpayers so far has been reported to be two trillion dollars plus 260 billion 
$260 billion in interest on the resulting debt. By comparison, our entire current federal budget, $3.8 trillion. The B reprinted an editorial by Trudy Rubin, writing for the Philadelphia Inquirer, noting that the costs of the Iraq war are staggering in lost lives and moral stature. Rubin notes that despite elections, Iraq still has a government that arrests and tortures political opponents and runs a secret police state. Indeed, in the near term, the biggest winner from the war looks to be Iran, whose influence on Iraq has grown while America's has shrunk. Rubin writes, as for the Iraqis, the cost of the war was brutal. I often think of Yasser Salehi, an Iraqi journalist colleague killed by a U.S. soldier who mistook him for the enemy. Or Salam Hamrani, who had to flee the country because his life was threatened for helping U.S. troops finger Shiite militiamen who were killing his Sunni neighbors. Or Dr. Riyad Adhath, who ran and won in provincial elections, but spent eight months in jail because the government of Prime Minister Nuri al-Maliki is suspicious of Sunnis. These cases are typical of thousands. We're going to have more to say about that in the weeks to come. We promise. We've talked in the show in years past about some of the abuses in, uh, in, in animal slaughterhouses. Meatpacking Plants, article by Alastair Bland in the Sacramento News and Review on this topic, titled Where's the Beef? Which Bland opens up with, a Sacramento lobbying agency for the beef industry is sponsoring a bill that says it will prevent animal cruelty and stamp out corruption in California livestock facilities. But animal rights activists warn that the proposed law would do almost exactly the opposite. And in other states, according to Richard Opfel in a piece in the New York Times, uh, all over the country... States are moving to outlaw taping of animal abuses. The piece describes some of the things that have been recorded on video for people to be able to inspect on YouTube, etc. Note that each video, all shot by underground animal rights activists, drew a swift response. Federal prosecutors in Tennessee charged that their horse trainer and some other workers had pled guilty with violations of the Horse Protection Act. Authorities in Wyoming charged nine farm employees with cruelty to animals. An egg supplier which operates in Iowa and other states lost one of its biggest customers, McDonald's. But, notes the article, a dozen or so state legislatures have had a different reaction. They proposed or enacted bills that would make it illegal to covertly videotape livestock farms or apply for a job at one without disclosing ties to animal rights groups. They have also drafted measures that would require such videos to be given to the authorities almost immediately, which activists say would thwart any meaningful investigation of large factory farms. Critics call them ag-gag bills. I think one of the best summaries was a quote by Mary Beth Sweetland, director of the investigations of the Humane Society of the U.S. in the Alistair Bland piece, noting that if they would just treat their animals fairly and humanely, they wouldn't need to be worried about these embarrassing exposés. And we note uh, this year, as we did last year, that apparently there's a state uh, geography contest, which is a great idea. It's, uh, it's basically the California Geographic Bee, which takes place in Sacramento. Article by Richard Chang in the Bee notes that uh, more than 100 students from across the state competed and that a 12-year-old from San Carlos will represent California at the National Bee on May 22nd in Washington, D.C., and apparently in this contest, one of Sacramento's uh, own made it into the final round of 10 contestants, Eric McKinley, who attends St. Michael's Academy in Carmichael, placed fourth overall. The eighth grader said he hopes one day to put his geography skills to use working for the U.S. State Department. Yes, that would be a good place to know some geography. 
which, as far as we can tell, is generally not being taught anymore in schools as they try and focus on things like reading, writing, and arithmetic with George Bush's uh, No Child Left Behind. There's a viewpoint piece in the B title, Education Agenda Stresses Math, Science. Piece by Michael Honda and Mohammed Chowdhury, which we're not going to quote from extensively. I think the headline says it all. And uh, we're on board on the science part, but uh, math... I do need to harp on this just a little bit. I was trying to help a seventh grader here in my neighborhood last week with the kind of math I used to remember hating so much because I never saw the point of it. And as I revisited it after a, I don't know, let's just say 40-plus year hiatus, I was astounded by its uselessness. They say it helps you think through problems. I don't think so. I think it's like taking a picture, cutting it apart, with a jigsaw, and then enjoying putting it back together again, taking it apart, putting it back together again. It's a useful skill if the skill involved is taking a picture and cutting it apart with a jigsaw and then putting it back together again. Anyway, to go back to the geography piece, (laughs) I love this quote. The competition was largely dominated by students from the Bay Area who accounted for eight of the ten finalists. They quote Stephen Cunha, a professor who chairs the geography department at Humboldt State University, as attributing the success of the Bay Area to the, re- to the region's rising population of Asian immigrants, who he said put a strong emphasis on educating their children. Now there's a concept. But yes, if you can name the countries that were part of the former Yugoslavia, it might be helpful to you when you're on a train going south of Vienna. Delving into the difference between polynomials and monomials maybe maybe not so useful. We're also extremely wary of this trend in education to apparently, based on some software, grade essays by a computer. Yes, they're going to let a computer grade your essays. I, 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 we got to get Dr. Andy Jones on this program to talk about this. Dr. Andy, of course, is the host of KDVS's excellent Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology Hour. He's eminently qualified to talk about both grading essays and computer technology. He's our go-to guy. We'll see if we can bring him on in the weeks to come to talk about this. Got three final items, some quickies, I hope. First, that the insomniacs, desperate to get some Zs, may have some relief on the future. Scientists at Merck Research Laboratories have decided to tap into the brain's orexin system, which is a protein that controls wakefulness, and conversely missing in people with narcolepsy, and apparently they've got a new orexin-inhibiting compound that induces sleep in rats and monkeys, and does so as effectively as the current GABA-modulating drugs, but uh, without the accompanying cognitive impairment. We're also looking forward to uh, the fact that uh, President Barack Obama has reluctantly decided to put $100 million into planning money for an accelerated asteroid mission, whose job will be to go out and lasso a 500-ton, 25-foot asteroid, then using the Orion space capsule now being developed, pull it nearer to the orbit of the moon to work on it. This, um, This is a good idea. We're for this. It's amazing to think that Apollo 13 launched... 40 years ago this week. Who would have imagined that this many decades later that uh, our manned space program would consist of putting people in a box, (laughs) orbiting them around the Earth and calling it a space station, which, by the way, buzzed overhead a couple of nights ago when I was out in the backyard. 
well, I, I didn't go on the web and check it, but it could have only have been the International Space Station. It was like twice as bright as Jupiter. Definitely one of those holy mackerel moments. All right, and finally, we're going to talk about uh, the relationship of the United States and our neighbor to the south, Mexico, in our third segment. And I think a good uh, prelude to that would be to quote from an excellent piece in the B last Sunday by Joe Lavernois, I guess it's pronounced. He was described as a former executive editor of the Monterey Herald and talked about the difference in health care as delivered south of the border to what you get here in the U.S. of A. The article was titled, Viva Mexico's Rational Health Care System. Mr. Lavornois starts out by saying that trying to discern from hospital charge masters what my father's private hospital room would have cost in California required an advanced university degree in Dante's Circles of Hell. Apparently, all that's missing from California's hospital rooms are taxi meters so that patients can track their pending bankruptcies. In describing what happened to his father down in the Mexican healthcare system, he said after decades of being conditioned by the outrage of staggering medical costs in the U.S., the bill I received from the Mexican hospital was a refreshing peek at what it must be like to navigate a rational healthcare cost environment. I barely noticed the tax of 16% which he mentioned specifically because he noted that because he's from California, the land of the tax whiner, he supposed he could have worked up some righteous jaundice about the value-added tax for a hospital bill in Mexico that was tacked onto his dad's bill. But he notes that even with the 16% tax, his father's bills came as a great shock, to say the least, but a pleasant kind of shock. The cost to save his father's life, he said, during a nine-day odyssey in Mexico's hospital came to 80,000 pesos total. Converted into American currency at the time, the bill came to $6,375. The bills included the procedures required to keep my father alive, as well as the lab work, the anesthesia, the specialist summoned to administer all of his other issues, all for less than $6,500. Well, we talked about this with Dr. Douglas Peredney on the program, this book about how the healthcare system in this country needs to be fixed. Because we spend most of our money on administration. We have an insurance industry in the middle, placing itself between the consumers of healthcare, i.e. the patients and the deliverers of it, i.e. the doctors, nurses, staff, etc., controlling what is being paid with no transparency. And when the author tried to determine what the comparable costs would have been in America, he was completely stymied by just an inability to do so. You simply cannot go to a hospital and say, what would this cost? We may want to bring this author on this program to talk about this, but I just want to close by noting that he said that after receiving the medical bills from Mexico, he tried to explain his relief to a friend of his dad's in Leon. He described the preposterous costs of medical care in the U.S. compared with Mexico, but she couldn't believe it. I don't know how to call it in English, he said, but in Mexico we call this un robo indespoblado. Mr. Livonois uh, translated that roughly as, well, an act of robbing someone in a desolate place because there's nobody around to stop it. So I don't know, we are out of time in this segment. So let's take a break. Listening to Radio Parallax, I'm Douglas Everett. I do want to note, before we go into our third and final segment of our most entertaining discussion about traveling in the United States from Mexico, that these are the words of our interviewee. We decided to let him tell his story in his own way and let the chips fall where they may. You'll see what I'm talking about. Stick around. (laughs) 